0: Hello, I'm Reggie Yates, and welcome to The Road Less Travelled, an original podcast series brought to you by Bellstaff.
1: You know, we all suffer from imposter syndrome. I've worked with people at the highest levels, you know, in in film or seen people even in music. And we all, as artists, we're sensitive. We all have imposter syndrome. Sometimes we lack self-belief. In those moments, it's really useful to believe in something other than and bigger than yourself. Carrying this kind of, like, burden of, like, representation of wider significance of your work, beyond just you as an individual, can actually be
0: a real gift. In this podcast, I talk to successful people in the public eye about risk-taking, confounding expectations and the choices they've made, which have led them to the place they are today. My guest today is a multi-award-winning activist, musician, writer, director, and when he has time, he does a little bit of acting occasionally. My guest today is Riz Ahmed. Your challenge, should you choose to accept it, is to I'm not, work out. I'm not tense. You look really worried about this. Uh, to work out the first time that we actually met. So oh, no, I,
1: no, no, no. <laughs> Wait. It was outside an audition.
0: No, that's not the story yes. I've got.
1: And I was waiting outside to go in an audition right. and I looked over and I saw you and you were doing big things, man. At that point you were all over the TV. I was like, "Oh shit, that's Reggie Yates, man." <laughs> And it was just one of them awkward ones where I was like, well, I know who he is. I don't know if he knows who I am. I want to kind of nod at him, but you seem like you were on some proper method business. And you and I kind of nodded at you, and you kind of like, I wouldn't say screw face, but I would say it was like a kind of like a really slight nod without making eye contact. Right. Wow. I was like, I was like, I went, you all right? And you went, hmm. <laughs> and I just thought, wow. Okay. Reggie Yates is a method actor.
0: Here's how you can tell I definitely am not a method actor. First and foremost, <laughs> I didn't get that job, whatever it not was. I, All right, fair enough. Yeah. And second of all, I, without doubt, wasn't thinking about the audition because I was terrible in auditions when I used to go for them. I was probably thinking about my shopping list yeah. or something else. Yeah. yeah. I was going to taste the girl or something.
1: If you were thinking about your audition, I'd feel better about the fact that you ignored me. But now that I know you were thinking about just daily chores and still ignored me... That actually makes it worse. All right. When do you think was the first time that we met then?
0: Okay. Uh, as we don't have the same story, it can wait because we'll definitely get to it. Okay. Um, Riz, thank you so much for joining me. Good it's, to see um, you, man.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Uh, I definitely find myself existing in lots of different disciplines. But if ever there was a person that I can uh, sit across the table from and say, you know what? You're just as much of a polymath. It's you because you exist in so many different lanes. Uh, but I'm fascinated to find out what found you first? Was it music? Was it acting? Or was it something else?
1: You know, in a weird way, I kind of would just think of it all as performing. Mm. You know, and performance was something that I was doing in my house, you know, just as the youngest kid in a very light, lively, loud, boisterous immigrant household.
0: How many siblings?
1: I had two older siblings and I didn't speak any English until I went to school when I was five. Wow. My siblings would go to school and come back and be speaking in English to each other. And I had to find a way of getting their attention, being involved in the conversation or something. And I used to always say, garmi Urdu, garmi Urdu," which means you have to, you know, the rule was you have to speak Urdu in the house. And I used to go and tell to my mom and say, look, they're not speaking Urdu.
0: So, so you were a language snitch.
1: I was a language snitch. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would just try and find ways of mucking about to like get attention and just be included really and my mum is like a massive personality she's like you know to this day she'll just randomly bust out with some like voices like a cartoon character or something you know in her 60s she's just like she's just young at heart you know my dad was away a lot with with work he used to work on ships so it was really a lot of my upbringing was about performing to get my sibling's attention. And just mucking about with my mum, doing like stupid characters and stuff. We used to watch a lot of Pakistani dramas mm. that are very larger than life uh, dramas, like Kabacha. I mean, this is super niche. Yeah. Like, if someone recognises <laughs> Kabacha, then I've, yeah. So my mum used to you. be
0: obsessed by Mahabharat. Was that something that? Oh your yeah, used to
1: Mahabharata. Watch? Yeah, of course, on Channel Four in the in the early mornings as well.
0: I've just realised I butchered the pronunciation. Yeah. Thank you for correcting it's me. without right. Correcting me.
1: I, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> you did your best, but. um you know, it's interesting, as soon as I left the house, performance kind of became a, a way of surviving.
0: Right. Why, because, why do you use the word survival?
1: So my mum got it into her head that like, she really wanted the kids to get a private education. My granddad came to the UK for his kids' education, but none of them really get the education that he came here for, managed to finish, you know. They were dealing with a lot of the challenges and really like, you know, the the head fuck really of coming to a new country and facing all the challenges that you would there, prejudice, whatever, you know, suddenly there's 10 of you living in a house. And so it was my mum's kind of thing that she wanted to get us into these like really good schools, but of course we couldn't afford it. You know, that wasn't my background income come from privilege. And so I got these scholarships from a really young age to go to private schools that were kind of a different world to the one that I grew up in. Right. And so what I found myself doing from the moment I really left the house to, you know, start going to school was was having to perform uh, which i refer to as kind of code switching Mm. and really that's something that continued throughout my whole adult life which is you know if there's one kind of culture and role i'm playing even one set of costume you know Mm. traditional shalwar kameez in this traditional pakistani household at home and then i'd go to school often kind of being you know getting on a coach or train to school it'd be like an hour away and putting on a a uniform and a tie and, and the, you know, that tie represents a house and that house is actually uh, named after Clive of India, the guy who actually conquered India, (laughs) you know what I mean? And I'm representing that house at school and it's his private school. It goes back hundreds of years. And then it comes down to like, you know, we're all doing army training now on Friday or rugby. And I'm like, nah, screw that. And I'm skipping class to go and hang out with my boys in, in, you know, Neesden and, you know, Wilsden and Harrow and and stuff like that. And then that's a third costume change. And that's like, you know, the fake Machino and the Reebok Classics. So I literally would take these changes of clothes with me. And I'd literally, you know, without even realising, without even deliberately doing it, just kind of moulding the way I'd speak or the way I'd carry myself. So I was kind of acting as a kind of form of just navigating the world from
0: a very early age. How do you go from not speaking English to actually winning scholarships to prestigious schools?
1: You know, it's interesting. I think that we often think of kids not speaking English when they get to school as being a disadvantage. But I actually think like, I mean, maybe there's some kind of research that shows this as well, but if you're bilingual before the age of like five or six or something like that, it, it changes something in your brain. I think it's something to do with like your neuroplasticity with language and stuff. So maybe it's just like actually helps, helps you pick up all kinds of languages if you learn more than one at an early age. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Uh, those versions of yourself that you've spoken to, you know, the kid in in Moschino wearing real classics versus the kid in the school tie, you described them as being performance, a different version of yourself that you were presenting to the world. How much did that influence your decision to go into drama and to actually perform openly and for real? Mm.
1: As I kind of went through school, and particularly my high school, I was getting into quite a lot of trouble. And looking back, I can see it was because of this kind of like identity conflict that I had. You know, it was quite a traditional school in some ways, quite conservative. It, it felt at times like people like me weren't welcome there. Right. And there would sometimes be like, you know, conflict and, you know, fights would break out with some of the, the, the you know, the older boys. And some of them were in, you know, combat 18 you know and and some of these kind of fascist groups but the school itself was also changing over that period of time the seven years that I was there went from being a kind of quite a posh school with a boarding house and you know people where the monitors and head boys might be affiliated to, to fascist groups to suddenly by the time I'd left it's like 50% Asian you know we got a first brown head boy so it was kind of a microcosm for the changes going on in in the UK and England at that time as well. This is all during the time of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry as yeah. well. This is really kind of land slap bang in the middle of of my time there when you start understanding these ideas of institutional racism. And so throughout high school, acting was something that really, really helped me find a place there. Mm-hmm. You know, I would audition for the, for the school plays and I would sometimes get the lead roles and I just felt like I can contribute something here. And also, as a teacher put it, listen, I was just quite hyperactive. I was quite ADD, to be honest. And um, he said, look, if you muck about in class, I'm going to give you detention. If you do it on stage, you get a round of applause. (laughs) And so it was a kind of anchor for me. It was a a way to channel a lot of my energy, a lot of all the really confusing emotions that I was feeling, you know, commuting and being bust and shuttling between these completely different lives. Literally world. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was was really an outlet, a therapeutic outlet for me. By the time I was leaving university... I never really thought that I could have a career in this. And this is what I think the important is of kind of having some kind of blueprint or role models or people you can look up to and go, well, actually this person did it, maybe I can. Yeah. Didn't really have that. Goodness gracious me was the closest thing we got to like a big cultural presence, you know, in my adolescence and early adulthood. You know, Art Malik had done his thing when that was kind of, when I was a little kid. We didn't really have anyone out there. Mm. And so I thought the chances of me being able to earn a living as an actor are, are minimal. And it was really because this this one girl who was really one of the only black British girls in my year at Oxford, dropped me an email. This is a time when everyone's applying for jobs. And she said, listen, I hope you're going to pursue the acting. You know, you have to do that.
0: It Did you? Were, you? were suicide. you even considering it?
1: I wasn't considering I was thinking that was a crazy thing to do. There's no chance I can have a career. People like me don't have careers in acting. And it was really because of that person's one word of encouragement that went, all right, you know what, I'll roll the dice. I'll just apply to one drama school. And because I can't afford it, I'll apply to one scholarship. And I'll have to get them both. Chances are slim. And I I got them both. And my name's Maxine Leinsight. And, you know, to this day, I thank her. And I I always think, man, if you can give someone a word of encouragement, Mm. do it. It might change their life.
0: Well, Jumping forward a few years, the first job that you got was Road to Guantanamo, right? Which was a docudrama, which is something we see a lot more of these days, which is a documentary infused with dramatic reenactments. But yours felt more than that. It felt filmic in a lot of ways. It was directed by Michael Winterbottom. It was 2006. You were a real young man. But the role that you were playing in the film that you were in spoke to quite a political perspective, and I'm just really interested as to whether or not that was a conscious decision to mm. be in something so political or whether it was circumstance because it feels so in keeping with you and your story mm. for that to be the first thing that you did yeah. that anybody saw.
1: A lot of it comes down to how much choice you really have. This is post 9-11.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember when we, we went to film that movie in Pakistan, Afghanistan and Iran, which like screwed up my passport for years afterwards. <laughs> yeah going to America. (laughs) But the day we came back from Kabul in Afghanistan was 7-7. The bombs went off that day. In London. Yeah. So this is peak post 9-11 kind of craziness, justified fear also, inflated fears, Mm. Islamophobia. And Guantanamo Bay had already been set up as a prison. And I'm, you know, a young British Muslim kind of finding my place in the world. And I'd watch the news and go, man what am I doing doing this acting stuff? Like, there's so much crazy stuff going on that's directly affecting people like me. Mm. I have to try and find a way. Like, I remember praying saying, God, is it, I, I want to find some way of bringing these two things together. Is there a way of doing that? And Road to Guantanamo found me at that point, which I think is amazing. But when you really think about it, what were the roles that were open to a young British Muslim in that era? Mm. I would say the first... Half of my career, really, the first 10 years, that is what the subject matter is. It's post 9-11 storylines. Yes. You know, stuff about Guantanamo Bay, stuff like Four Lions, stuff like Brits. Mm. You know, these are the story areas that we were allowed to inhabit. Within that, you've got some stuff that really doubles down on stereotypes and you've got some stuff that subverts them. The only decision I'd made is, of the stuff available to me, the stuff that flips over these stereotypes. And so I had that intention in my heart Mm. and then it found me. But in some ways, it's not a decision. I don't think it is a decision to be political. If you inhabit a certain body in a certain place in a certain time, your very existence is political. Mm. The existence of someone like me, loudmouthed, performer, British, Muslim, for some people, my very existence is controversial. People like me shouldn't be here. You know what I mean? So... For me, it's just expressing my life, my reality, the things that affect me emotionally day to day. But from the outside, it can look like it's very political.
0: Mm. You know? Well, what comes up quite a lot on this show that I love is this idea of people being on a journey and also you know, choosing a particular path or being led down one. And it feels as though even in the earlier stages of your career, you've chosen something. And I know that you say you have no choice in the way in which you're seen, but you do have a choice in the projects that you take.
1: You have a choice within the choices available to you. Right. The big overarching goal is to expand the choices that are available to you.
0: Mm-hmm. So where does Deadset fit into that early stage of your career? Because we're talking about Road to Guantanamo being something that triggered a lot of conversation and debate about the way that we see young Muslim men. And Deadset was uh, a project that you worked on with a mutual friend of ours, Jan Demar, an amazing director, But it was also entertainment in its rawest form. You know, Mm. it was about a zombie apocalypse that happened to feature a bunch of young actors playing people uh, who were trapped in the Big Brother house. Mm. I mean, there's a sequence where Davina McCall turns into a zombie. You know, (laughs) that is massively different to some of the other work that you were doing at the time. Mm. And in a way, from where I was sat anyway as a fan, just watching this show and seeing lots of people I knew and lots of people I admired of the same age, it felt as though it was an opportunity for you guys to be seen as just good actors as Mm -hmm. opposed to archetypes or even worse, stereotypes. Mm -hmm. For you, how important do you think doing something as broad as that, that early in your career, allowed you to potentially walk down different walkways, different Mm. journeys, different paths?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, you're right. I mean, off the road to Guantanamo, I, I kind of something weird happened to me, which was that we were coming back from um, the Berlin Film Festival where we'd won an award and we were kind of all detained by British intelligence officers who interrogated us about why we did the film. Did you become an actor to further the Muslim struggle? Wow. I was like, no, became an actor to try and get girls. This isn't <laughs> what I had in mind. Putting me in arm locks, grabbing my phone out of my hand. And it was kind of traumatic. But I also realised some stuff like this happens every day. So I released this song, The Post-9-11 Blues. And it was this kind of joke track, really, about this post-9-11 circus of fear. Recording that track kind of opened me up to meeting Chris Morris, to meeting Aaron Creevy, who directed the video, who went on to put me in Shifty. And um, found it kind of expressing my experience rather than closing doors, which we always have this fear. Like, man, don't talk part your experience your experience might be a bit controversial it might be a bit niche you might close doors what i've learned early on was actually talking truthfully about what i'm experiencing just connects me with people that i should be connected with mm. you know who are going to be sympathetic to that who are going to allow you to be yourself and as part of that someone who i think saw what i was doing and reached out was jan demange jan cast me really in the first thing i ever did that had nothing to do with the post 9-11 Landscape.
0: Your race or how you appear.
1: Absolutely. And um, I remember he said, listen, I saw you in Guantanamo. I see what you've been doing since and really want to work with you. And you know, it opened me up in several ways. One way in which it opened me up is as you're saying, doing something that had really nothing to do with my cultural background. Another way it opened me up was it, Connected me to Yan, who's gone on to become a you know a close friend and a mentor in many ways. When it comes to like advice around filmmaking and you know when I made my short film and we continue this kind of creative dialogue, which has been a real blessing. But another way in which it opened me up was actually through working with Andy Nyman. Do you know Andy Nyman? Not personally. He's an, he's an amazing, amazing actor. But some people may not know this. People in the world of magic know this, but he is Darren Brown's co-creator. Wow. And creative partner. So those magic tricks that Darren does, it's Andy and Darren Brown.
0: And how did that affect you?
1: Basically, (laughs) this guy was a maniac (laughs) on set. (laughs) Like, I think he found the most amazing, inviting kind of balance between being really warm and really friendly on set, not being a weirdo, but when they said rolling he would snap into it. Say if you had an argument with that character, he would just start rinsing you. He would just start <laughs> ripping into you. He would get properly into character. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're going to cry then. Is that what you're going to do? Uh, look at you. Look at the state of you. And I was just like, uh, okay. So I guess it's okay to like fully, fully play and throw yourself into it. No one's going to laugh at you if you really throw yourself into this. And coming from a background where, you know, no one in my immediate circle or family had gone into the arts in that way, you still carry a bit of shame and embarrassment about the fact that, come on, this isn't a real job. (laughs) Come on, like, yeah, yeah, we're doing this. But he just taught me to, in a way, by osmosis, just throw yourself into this, man.
0: Mm. Well, how do you navigate that thing? You know, actors are seen to be pretentious. Actors Mm. are expected to be divas. But given your background and given your way into the arts it couldn't be more untrue.
1: Mm, it's a balance, isn't it? Because it's, I don't know who said it, but someone was like, take your work seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. Right. And I think that's what it's about, you know. You know, actually Marlon Brando dealt with this a lot and lots of working class actors have dealt with this in the past where you kind of feel like, man, this isn't a proper job. You know, this just a man's job. This is what we should be doing. And a lot of people kind of carry that. And actually a lot of people I know, whether they're directors or from backgrounds that are not, steeped in the arts mm. will often have this feeling of kind of shame to call themselves an artist.
0: What do you attribute that to?
1: I think it's immigrant work ethic, it's working-class guilt, it's it's imposter syndrome. Yeah. This is a fun job sometimes. Sometimes it's really, really hard work as well. Mm. You know, people don't realise that there is a kind of endurance element to it as well. But it's kind of like you pinch yourself, you're like, man, I get to do this for a living. You kind of feel almost guilty about it. Yeah. See what your parents or people around you have had to do... If you're in environments where most of the people there don't share your background, economically, Mm. racially, implicitly you start to internalise this idea that I don't belong here. Right. And the idea of calling yourself an artist feels like a crazy thing to say.
0: How do you reconcile that though? How are you able to be comfortable speaking about your art and also calling yourself an artist, a creator?
1: I've never really done it. Still to this day? It was actually... I think this year or even just the end of last year was the first time I kind of had this conversation with myself, which is like, look, man, you love this thing. You can do this thing. Commit to it. Don't stand kind of on the threshold or the doorway. Jump in with both feet. And you'll only be able to do that properly if psychologically you give yourself permission to and say, this is me. This This isn't a thing I'm doing. This is my vocation. This is my path. This is what I'm here to do and that's a difficult conversation to have with yourself if it's racked up in all these kind of different issues that tell you that this path isn't for you.
0: Or hang-ups, because a lot of us have them. I'm I'm interested as to why you think it's taken you so long to get to that place when so early on in your career, you had that moment on the set dead Set, which was like, what, your second or third job? You had an actor who essentially gave you that lesson, and we're talking about decades later, Is when you finally realize that and the pennies drop for you.
1: Yeah, it takes time, I think, to reject all those subtle messages that you receive day after day after day, saying, as Joaquin put it in his BAFTA speech, you're not welcome here. No one looks you in the face and says, at an audition, says, piss off, like, we don't want you here. No one says that. Everyone's trying to do their best. Everyone's just working within a system that is inherently skewed and biased away from people like you. Mm. When you just kind of go through your life and you see. People you're coming up with, you know, people of the same generation of you. And, you you know, as David Oyelowo put it to me once, he says, we have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And so you start to internalize this messaging that maybe you don't belong. Maybe this isn't for you. Maybe you should keep one foot in, one foot out. Maybe you should have a side hustle. I think it takes a long time to push against that i also think that culturally where we're at now as a society in the arts is we've engaged with those issues a bit more head-on we haven't fixed them but we're able to talk about them so you feel less alone in this feeling so i think it's it's a combination of both my own growth but also our growth as a as a kind of culture within the arts that's allowed me to kind of have that conversation with myself
0: how much do you think that that's generational you know we are of the same generation or a couple of years apart we have sort of with both hands, embrace the fact that we are living in a very different time to our creative forefathers, if you will, particularly here in the UK. Things are dramatically different for us. And yes, there are difficulties, but at the same time, I believe that for a lot of us, we've decided that we're not going to wait for somebody to create the perfect role. We're going to write it. We're not going to wait for the amazing mentor to come along. We're going to be it to the next version of us. Mm. How much do you think that our generation are responsible for that as working people of color in the arts.
1: I really believe that we are all links in a chain. And I really, really truly believe that we wouldn't have the opportunities to write these roles or have the confidence to say, screw it, I'm gonna write these roles. Or have the people around us even that are willing to listen to us as we pitch these ideas and roles. Or have peers who resemble us, who could enable us to create these this work if it wasn't for the people that went before us. We're standing on the shoulders of giants that's humbling um, for two reasons one you know you shouldn't get too ahead of yourself and you got to realize that you're always building on foundations of people that went before but two you yourself will also be a a stepping stone for the next generation to outdo and surpass you Mm -hmm. and it's a kind of strange thing because in a weird way and particularly if you're if you kind of say you're an artist activist which i believe most of us who are kind of conscious artists of colour, whether you like it or not, that's kind of what you end up being. You know what I mean? You're pushing against dominant culture. That's a kind of activism, whether you like it or not. But if you are that kind of artist activist, you're kind of like spending your life campaigning for your own irrelevance. What I'm trying to work towards is a situation where... That next generation of brown kid doesn't have any issue calling themselves an artist from day one, doesn't have that feeling of I don't belong because the landscape is completely reshaped. And that's not something I can do alone. That's something that a generation of us will do. But I wouldn't have it any other way. It's beautiful to be working for something that's bigger than and other than yourself. Absolutely. Don't get it twisted. I want to try and get paid and smash it as much as I can as well. You 100%. know what I mean? Just,
0: uh, but. <laughs> uh, Look, we started this conversation by playing a, a, a little game. Do you remember when we first met? I think that you're right in that audition being the first time that we actually met. You'd forgotten about that, didn't you? Yeah. I can't I was, believe I was trying, it. I was trying to gloss over it, bro. But the first time that we actually met that I remember, it wasn't in the acting space, it was at Glastonbury. Do you remember this?
1: Of it was at Glastonbury. Of course, I don't remember it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So we were in the Shangri-La. We being not me and you, me and a mutual friend of ours, another mutual friend of ours, uh, Ashley Thomas, yeah. uh, who will speak about a greater length yes, when we get yes. to the Bashy. night off. Bashy, the MC slash actor Ashley Thomas. He and I were uh, at Shangri-La at Glastonbury and was like, oh, let's go and see Riz perform. And you finished your set and you jumped off the stage. You were wearing a full Breaking Bad onesie in white. You were wearing a gas mask and you were rapping through the gas mask. <laughs> and you came over and I met Riz MC for the first time before I met Riz Ahmed and we had a chat and then you jumped back on stage after and I was like how is this guy doing all of this stuff because you were at that point uh, Shifty had been out uh, you'd done a few big things you were leading movies but Riz MC still seemed incredibly important to you and Riz MC wasn't just making radio ditties he was and is producing records that trigger thought and start conversation. So the first time I met you, I was like, okay, this guy is doing lots of different things and in clearly, the weirdest
1: possible way. Well, I didn't want to most, say much
0: about in the in the most bizarre the wardrobe choice.
1: Unnecessary <laughs> way possible. His creative choices are strange. <laughs> I didn't think of it as like there's acting and then there's rapping. I just thought of his performance. And they're both ways of expressing yourself. Well, you know, music is a way of expressing my thoughts getting my thoughts off my chest and acting as a way of expressing my emotions and getting all those emotions off my chest. It just so happened, as you know, as we were saying, that I happened to be kind of coming of age and growing up as as a a young adult in this post-9-11 haze. I was 18 when 9-11 happened. And I felt like there was stuff that needed to be said that people weren't saying or at least they weren't saying the way I wanted to say it. And that's why I continued to do it. You know, it's a kind of therapy, it's a kind of catharsis. I've thought many times about the fact, actually, do I still need to be doing this? You know, I'm an older man now. And every time I go out there and every time I put out a tune or release some dates and go out and play, I see the hunger for it, man. And this album that I've just released now is kind of following that line. It's called The Long Goodbye. And The Long Goodbye is a breakup album about being dumped by Britain charts through the journey of this toxic abusive relationship that's coming to an end now a lot of people have been talking about brexit and xenophobia and racism multiculturalism lots of people have thoughts on this subject i want to just show you how it feels i want to share the heartbreak Mm. of feeling like a house that you built now no longer wants you i want to share that feeling i want to share the feeling of of that loss, that heartbreak, that rejection, that anger, that denial, that acceptance and that overcoming. Those seven stages of grief, really, of going through this breakup. Because this is something that's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. This is happening in Britain, in India, in Myanmar, in China, in America, in Europe, in Italy, in Hungary. Around the world, people are saying they want their country back. And, and that hurts, but we still still it. So I wanted to kind of explore that that, this breakup that's going on between countries and their minorities from an emotional space. Is that, in some ways, a kind of like slightly left-field creative choice? Yeah, but for me, there's no choice behind it because it's about getting off the stuff that's on my chest. Yeah, So that's what it is, really. It's a way of saving on therapy bills. <laughs> that's what my music is, really.
0: Well, whenever anyone asks me what I think about your music, I always talk about going to that Sweatshop Boys gig that you did in Los Angeles. I came with Jan, and it was the most surreal rap show I've ever been to. Not because of what happened on stage, because of what happened backstage. You look blank because you don't remember. So the night before, we all went for dinner, and there was a really interesting mix of people around the table. There were people from the UK, people from the US, and we were having a conversation about the US election, because at that time, Trump was running. And everybody is talking about the fact that, well, the Americans are, that Trump will never be elected. And we just had Brexit. And us as Brits around the table going, you know what, guys? I think it could go a different way. And I referred to your gig as the strangest rap gig I've ever been to because backstage of your rap show, there weren't any hip-hop honeys. There wasn't Hennessy being poured. There was a massive projector screen with CNN on the projector and everybody was sat watching the news because it was the night of the election. And there was the weirdest feeling in the room at the after party because it was announced that Trump had won. And I'll never forget being in this sort of dressing room where, you know, people are supposed to be doing the hip-hop thing, supposed to be popping bottles of champagne, and there was this massive political debate happening. People were in tears, people were sobbing. It was just a really strange experience, but it made sense considering the person that brought us all there and what's important to you. Now, for somebody who makes music in the way that you do, how much more do you see yourself doing that, bringing not just politics and the issues that matter to you to the table, but actually triggering debate Mm. through your music?
1: You know, speaking of that gig, I should say that he, it's there's always been a fifty-fifty split in what sweatshop boys was because Heems was certainly popping bottles and doing his thing, <laughs> doing the hip hop uh, yeah, thing. In he, he was every definitely drunk way, on stage. He, whereas I was I've been gone. sober for, you know. Um <laughs> and so yeah, there there was that element, but I was really proud of that show in a way because I remember saying, Look, if you wanna be sad, go home. If you wanna get angry, stay here. Yeah. It was a kind of therapeutic experience for people. I think another thing that I've thought was really unique about our shows and something i'm proud of going forward is just the crowd Mm. you know you had latin kids gay kids girls in hijab you know white girls from the oc you know you had the whole kind of mix i think we have a really really diverse crowd at our shows and it was kind of amazing for us all to be there because yeah you're right we people were raving but they were crying while they were jumping up and down again, you know, in terms of like the extent to which I'll bring politics into my music again, for me, it's not politics. It's just my reality. Right. It's just what's on my mind. It's just what's in my heart. You know, when I did post nine 11 blues, I was just writing about, okay, sometimes when I'm on the, you know, tube with a backpack, people might look at me funny. That's just my day-to-day life, but people grade that as political. Similarly with the long goodbye, it's just about this feeling that you have walking down the street after Brexit being called a packy for the first time you have in 15 years, which experience experience so many people had.
0: Uh, given the the arc of your career, I'd love to know where you stand on being awarded for your work because I got the weirdest reaction ever when I, um, I tweeted the picture of you at the Emmys, which was yourself, Lena Waithe, f- and Donald Glover stood together holding your awards up and it's a beautiful picture it's incredibly inspiring for a lot of people because that year Sterling K. Brown won as well I mean a lot of people were talking about how special that year at the Emmys was to receive that award must have been a huge thing for you but to see the way in which people reacted
1: Well, what kind of reaction I guess are you talking about?
0: A positive right, right. A, a celebratory
1: I thought um, you were talking about an army of trolls that I didn't even know about I was like, nah, not, the way not people reacted you know the way they were like <laughs> the what, thi- the, what is going what, on here
0: the Take thing is that was back. overwhelming about it was that everybody was sort of saying about time because you were the first South Asian man to win an Emmy award it was people being awarded for undeniably great work who happened to be of colour hmm. how much do awards matter when an award that you win arguably can mean so much more Mm. to people that you'll never meet than maybe to yourself.
1: Right. So the awards themselves are, you know, it's nice, it's lovely, it's a high, it's a sugar rush, it's all that kind of stuff. Your life doesn't change after you go back to being paranoid about the same stuff, dissatisfied about the same stuff, happy about the same stuff. Bradley Cooper said to me once, it was actually around the time of the night, he asked to meet me for Star Is Born for a role in that. And he was saying, um, look, just so you know, like everything's changing for you right now. I've been nominated for you know this this this. It doesn't change your life. It doesn't. Nothing's different. You know what I mean. Just so you know that. I think the thing that's that's interesting is, is that idea of being a first, or that idea of like carrying a responsibility or a significance that extends beyond just your own work, right. and how double edged that is, because on the one hand, carrying this kind of like burden of like representation can actually be a real gift. Mm. It can animate your work with a sense of mission when your self-belief is flagging. But it's also double-edged because it can also sometimes cripple you. It can cripple you from making your own artistic choices just because, hey, this is what I want to do. Mm. Because you're aware that anything you do may have that ripple effect. Yes, Not because you're so important or anything, nothing like that. Not because you're some big cheese, but just because there's such a kind of lack of people like you or in that role that are visible, it can sometimes be really tricky because you're like, I want to explore this, but what would it mean if I explored that? What would it mean if I played a role like that? Is this what the culture needs? Is this a thing that pushes us forwards? And sometimes you're distracted from thinking just about your own growth and curiosity as an artist. And something that I've kind of started thinking is actually the biggest way you can stretch culture is by unmasking yourself rather than trying to think well hey i'm here to represent this 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 and i'm going to push towards this storyline and this thing and this song topic is actually going here's me
0: it's being the individual
1: yeah my unapologetic full self particularly if you've grown up being taught that you have to leave a part of yourself at the door walk into a certain kind of room i leave my my acting oxford educated side at the door walk into another kind of room i leave my pakistani background at the door you know actually if you've grown up like that you realize you're very rarely your full unapologetic fully messy fully complicated self and i'm starting to think making work from a really personal place that allows me to unmask all the facets of who i am is actually possibly the best way to both just present myself and to represent and to stretch culture so i'm actually kind of turning a corner right now of trying to make work from like just a really personal place and um see where that takes me
0: how would you describe the road that you've travelled
1: I would describe the road that I've travelled as one that is kind of unpaved but the path was kind of cut out by others before me and it's a road that I hope to like pave for others it's
0: beautiful Riz genuine pleasure thank man. you bro really enjoyed this you've been listening to The Road Less Travelled brought to you by Bellstar